Hey there, Freedom Fighters. My name is Andrew Warner. I'm the founder of Mixergy, where I interview entrepreneurs about how they built their businesses. One of the top things I noticed is that um, entrepreneurs who I've interviewed who've built successful companies tend to solve problems. And often they're problems that we just kind of take for granted. We assume as, as customers, as users, if we have these problems, they're our fault. There's something wrong with me. And so we don't notice them, let alone want to fight against the system. One of those problems is having your car repaired or maintained or looked after. There's a sense that I'm not good at understanding cars. I happen to be the one person who doesn't have enough time to take my car in for maintenance. It's me. And so if we think as consumers that it's us, we don't recognize that there's a problem, let alone say somebody's got to solve the problem. Well, joining me is an entrepreneur who did recognize the problem and is solving it. His name is Limvarak Chia. Am I pronouncing your name right? Dude, I so prefer the way you say it. Can you say it yourself? Limbrachea. You've got such a good like combination of accents. Where are you from? <laughs> I'm French-Cambodian. So my parents are Cambodian. I grew up as a French kid, uh, pretty much all over the world. Uh, studied one year in the US when I was uh, 20-ish. I was 20-ish and, um, and moved to the UK 15 years ago. So yes, interesting combination of uh, countries. And somewhere in I there you told- I still believe I have a French accent though. You definitely have a French accent, but it's got this worldly um, feel to it. And maybe we'll get into some of the places that you'd been growing up and beyond um, within this interview. But the person you just heard is the founder, CEO of Fixter. It's car maintenance as easy as ordering takeaway. Somebody comes to your house, takes your car, takes care of it, and then brings it right back. That's what it's all about. I invited him here to talk about how Fixter got started, how they talked to customers, how they understood the problem, how they solved it, how they got customers, and so much more. And we could do it thanks to two phenomenal sponsors. The first, it's a company called Rippling, and I love it because it's the all-in-one employee management system. They do all the HR, all the management of your team, all in one app, and I'm going to encourage you later on to go to rippling.com slash Mixergy. And the second one, it's SaneBox. And I'm going to tell you my email address. Instead of promoting them, I'm going to tell you, email me, andrew at mixergy.com. And when I talk about SaneBox later on, I'll tell you why SaneBox is allowing me to just put my email out there and make it easy for me to manage all the incoming messages. First, good to have you here. Give me a sense of revenue. Where Where's the revenue for Fixter right now? We are at 3 million pounds revenue run rate. Impressive. Um, and it's been, yeah, that's, that's where we are at the moment. And it's been, what, about three years, four years almost that you've been running the business? Uh, a bit more than three years. Uh, we launched London um, three years ago, uh, Q1 2018. I want to go back a little bit. Before this, you were heading a company called Street Life. What's Street Life? So Street Life is a local social network. Right? So and I think the proposition was how do we bring neighbors speaking to each other Right. I don't think Facebook or other apps would connect uh, in a very local kind of way. And uh, street, street life was, was connecting those neighbors right, in small areas. How did you get connected to street life? Um, so I got hired as a new CEO to help the founder uh, scale the company, right, Series A and beyond. And then you come in there thinking, all right, I'm going to help scale the company. And what happened when you got in? So I joined just after the Brexit, right? So I joined uh, July 2016. So, uh, uh, and I think what, what was happening in, um, 
in the UK was, I think, especially in startup world, there's a bit of doubt, right? What was going to happen to the world? And um, and so the funding that uh, was supposed to be there actually wasn't there anymore, right? So uh, very difficult situation, another situation I had, uh, had signed in for. And so at some point it ran out of cash, am I right? And you were you were leading the business, right? You were CEO, company runs out of cash. What do you think, what happens to you at that time? Uh, didn't run out of cash, but uh, the cash runway was getting shorter and shorter, right? So I okay. think when, when you do in those in those occasions, right, is you look at all the different alternatives, right, that is that are possible, right? So knowing that to build a new strategy, to execute a new strategy always takes time. So I think what, what I learned is uh, you have to, to assess the situation and discuss with your board, right, what are the different options. And um, one options we looked at was uh, either reset the company, uh, but that means uh, I wasn't needed anymore. Either ask the existing investors to put more more funds, uh, but they were very cautious because of the new environment, or decide to go one way, which was uh, in this case we decided to go for uh, trying to sell the company. Right. So and and um, when you when you try that, you you better succeed because it's really hard if you don't uh, if you don't succeed and you don't have funds to do something else. The business was sold soon after you came on board to uh, next door. The Correct. U.S. company. I think it was it was quite a success, right? So uh, next door, next door, UK, uh, street life uh, was the base, and so we found a, a right, a good home, good home for. Was, uh, was that your deal? Did you make that deal happen before you left? Yeah, you did. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, I worked on that. Uh, I worked a lot on that, and uh, I think I made sure that all the customers and as many as possible were transitioned to next door. Uh, worked a bit with the Nextdoor UK team, and I think it was a good success. What makes it a success? This was around the time when Nextdoor raised, I think, $200 million at a valuation of a billion dollars. It officially or unofficially became a unicorn. What was it that made it a success for you? I think success in what I learned as a CEO, right? I think what you, le- what you learn is you have to make t- tough choices, um, and you have, when you have made the choice, right? In this case, I will see a work with my board on that. It's uh, you by yourself, right? So you have to go to what you have said you could do. Um, and I think that's that's my personal learning, right? More as a CEO, a young CEO, first time CEO, learning uh, that it's not easy being alone. Uh, so you have to surround yourself with uh, good advisors. And it also feels like you found a way to make a success out of a company that in, in many ways could have just gone down considering what was going on, right? Yeah, that's correct. I think that's the life of many startups, right? It's, you can quickly move from something that is about to die to something that is a major success. So <laughs> usually you're in between. Um, and um, yeah, I think you have to, to keep fighting. You have to be, to be resilient. Do you still have equity in Nextdoor, you personally? No, I don't anymore, no. You I don't? part of the... What do you mean? It was part of what? How did you end up with nothing? Uh, so as part of the deal, I, I, didn't, I didn't get any equity and, uh, and, and I left soon after because I wanted to found my own company. Why? Why do you want to found your own company considering how tough this was? And from everything I'd seen, your background as, as somebody at uh, one of the early, well, a post-IPO people at Google, you were at AOL Finance, Eventbrite, you had a really great career. Why, why go back to running your own company? What was it that you liked about it? It's an excellent question. I think having been in London for 15 years, uh, being French, 
uh, I think I always work in non-European companies and I always felt that I wanted to help grow the European startup ecosystem, right? And I think that was my decision of leaving Evan Bright. I'm sorry, why? Why Why does that matter to you? I don't, I don't understand, and I'm not putting it down. I want to really understand, why is people's mission to create a bigger startup ecosystem as opposed to saying, I'm going to take just care of my customers, take care of my employees, take care of my family? Why do you care about the greater ecosystem and not just let it develop on its own? I think the difference is working in a big European company, sorry, US company, what you realize is everything is very US centric, right? So to develop a product that is really specific to the, to the, to Europe is very difficult, right? I think next door mm-hmm. managed to do that. And they learned by learning by everything that we did at Street Life and, and adapting the product to make it uh, work in Europe, right? And I think, um, I did the same at Evanbright, but what I, what I realized is, Finding a company in Europe, you can quickly focus on your customers. And in my case, at Fixter is really focusing on the UK customers first, uh, rather than taking a product and changing it to adapt it to the UK. And uh, for me, that was a big difference, more th- in addition to just helping the European ecosystem. Ah, okay. That makes sense. When you worked at Eventbrite and you tried to take this um, American, very Silicon Valley company and make it more European, what are some of the ways that you could make this American company fit into the European market? What did you do? Oh, first of all, it's a great company, great product. Yep. I think my role was really explaining the specificities, so the differences of the UK market. One of them was on the payment side. Right. So a lot less people use credit cards, a lot more people use debit cards. So that means the payment processing fees are lower. Right. So explain the small changes that really made my life different. Uh, like what? Team. And when you say explaining it, you mean explaining it back to the, the, to, to the product team in the U.S. In the Correct. U.S. What other changes, what other differences are there in the European market versus the American market? Uh, there's more than just the Zs and the S when you change um, a word like uh, monetize, for example. But I think it's... It's, um, you know, the type of features that, uh, so I worked a lot with, a lot with uh, music promoters, right? And there are features that they expected in the UK. For example? Uh, that, um, installment plans, right? So the ability to pay in several uh, several times, not once at, at, um, at a given time. Even for event management software, they didn't want to pay all up front, even though they were selling tickets and each ticket basically was uh, including a fee on it. So many wanted to offer their customers the ability to pay with different installments. Oh, for an event. For events, yes. Ah, so you know what? That is a foreign concept to me. Uh-huh, sorry. Yeah, and so basically instead of paying, let's say, uh, so 200 pounds ticket, you pay in three times, right? So, and that splits a half just when you pay the ticket, 25% at the later stage and 25% just before the event, right? So those kind of things that are uh, slightly different, but that are required by the market. Uh, okay, I'm with you now. So you said, look, I don't want to have to recustomize. I want to build from the ground up here, and then maybe we expand into the US. So the idea for Fixter wasn't originally yours, right? Who came up with the idea? So the project was incubated at Camet Ventures, right? Incubator, uh, backed, um, and, and, um, and so I came in after the project had started and uh, wasn't going well or wanted needed to be to to reaccelerate and um and i came in when the team was uh, around a few people mostly engineer and uh basically reset the project we built an mvp 
did that with my co-founders, right? So CTO and CPO, so Chief Technology Officer and Chief Product Officer. And um, what I realized is that the idea was a great idea and uh, we just needed to tweak a few things, uh, try right. more, and then from there scale uh, slowly. Let me go back to the incubation. This was, um, it's Volkswagen that has this incubator, right? Am I, am I misunderstanding? It is, AXA. right? AXA, French uh, insurance company. Oh, got it. All right. I thought that you were also part of a, the Volkswagen incubator. Okay. So AXA, the, why, how does it work? Do they come up with the idea or does the entrepreneur come up with the idea? It's usually a mix. In this case, it was uh, their idea and they were looking for operators uh, to help them scale that idea. Okay. And um, and I think uh, once uh, when I discussed with them, I said, "Wow, this is really an issue that I had myself, right?" Mm-hmm. So going to a garage, showing up, realizing that my booking wasn't in any system, looking at uh, how you you now used to book a hotel or a yeah. restaurant, so just using a mobile app, like, look, there must be a better way in an industry that is a huge industry. That's probably we're talking about twenty billion pounds per year just in the UK. Uh, so I really like the idea because I had this issue myself, and I like I like tackling issues. I like solving problems. And so then, if it's if it's not your idea, I hate to get into equity, but how much of the business do you end up owning if you're if it's somebody else's business? I don't. So um, it is. Uh, I think the way they incubate is they keep a small share, but I still have a, a big chunk of the business, right? So oh, okay. with my co-founders, right? So we're we're close to half of the business now. Okay. So they really help with this idea. They bring the entrepreneurs to to accelerate those uh, this uh, the scaling. So, what are the problems that you saw in it that that you said you wanted to fix? I think it's trying to go slowly, right? Uh, when you have when you launch an idea, is first you have to you know you always have those phases where you have to be on an MVP, test the market, iterate, and um, and so. The team was a great team, and it was more about helping them say, okay, why don't we try to do one thing that is very basic, right? So get a user to book, to have a great experience, and um, and get them confident in giving the keys of their cars to someone that is that they don't know, right? So, um, and we started with um, on the web, right? So no mobile experience. Yeah. Uh, and so what we saw is that if you explain that well, and we focus on trust. We try to explain. We spoke to our initial customers. This worked, right? And I think when this worked, you, you validate, you move to the next thing, right? So what I have tried in Manchester, can I expand that in a new city, right? And I think when I said we launched London about uh, three years ago, that's because we had learned that people were willing to give their keys. The garages were looking for uh, extra work. And the whole system um, uh uh, was working right, so that means the product was was appealing to customers. We could attract them, and they would they would book online. And so that's when we launched London, and from there we started scaling progressively. Right, let me started hiring and building the team there. I want to know a little bit more about the early days in that first finding product market fit period. But first, let me tell you and my audience about a company called Rippling. I'll tell you why I discovered them. It's it's an all in one HR and IT platform. Here's why I discovered it. For some reason, no matter how many experts I hire, no matter how much software I bring in, I'm the one responsible for the 1099s. In the US, that's where you file paperwork to tell the IRS, tell the government, here's how much money 
I paid uh, different contractors. It always comes back to me to do the math, to put it all together. I said, never again. I can't, I can't have it come to me. And so I said, I need to find a solution. And I kept hearing about this company Rippling. I did the demo and I realized, all right, they're going to handle it all. Anytime I want to make a payment, I could just go in and make a payment to any contractor. We have somebody who we work with and have for years who helps organize our uh, interviews. He works in the UK. I can't pay him using our usual system. Well, with Rippling, I could pay him using using Rippling, just like anyone else in America. Like he's a regular human being. Instead of making it crazy, they make it easy to pay international contractors. And to me, I said, that's it. You solved it for me. I love you. I'm signing up. It's cheaper than my alternatives, the, the other software that we use. Phenomenal. Then when I did the onboarding, I discovered something. They said, Andrew, do you give uh, people who sign up with you a new email address? I said, yeah, they get their name at Mixergy.com. I said, isn't that a pain? I go, yeah, I never thought of it, but you're right. I have to go in and remember. I said, well, here, when you add them and you onboard them, why don't you just press a button and you could give them their email address? I said, that's phenomenal. They said, do you use Slack for, for new people? Do they get access? I said, no, truthfully, I don't like it. But they said, okay, if you ever do, let me show you something. The, the guy who did the demo says, look, when you pay, when you onboard someone, they pay the, they sign the paperwork. And then the next thing is they get their email address. And the next thing after that is they could get not just the Slack account access, but they also get all the rooms that they need in Slack all organized. I said, this is really exciting. They said, all the software that you give your people, you could automatically give it to them using Rippling. Just like when you sign them up, you get their banking information so you could pay them. They sign the paperwork so that you've got that on, on file and you can pay them from Rippling. Well, you could handle all the software that you give them access to from Rippling. I said, this is amazing. And it's cheaper than just uh, standard um, employee and contractor payment options that I've looked at. They said, well, what about when someone leaves? I said, all right, that's a good one. I said, when they leave, you have to remember all the different things you gave them access to. I said, yeah. I said, here, you have their account all in one place. You say they're terminated. You give them their severance. And then boom, you take away all the all the accounts that they have access to all in one, no more headaches. And frankly, in, in the in-between period, they get a great experience getting paid. They get to they get full access to their numbers so they know how much money they made. They see how it came into their bank account. And they have one place where they could go and see all the apps that you give them access to with an easy way to log in. They don't even need a password manager. It's all taken care of. I said, phenomenal. I'm in and I am a customer of theirs. And now I'm urging my audience to go and check out Rippling. I know this is not a decision that people make like that. So what I'm going to suggest you do is just go do a demo. I want you to file it in the back of your head so that when you get frustrated, when you think you're locked into something, when you think there's a better way, you'll at least know what that better way is. And if you want to do that, my people over at Rippling will personally take care of you and walk you through how the software works if you go to rippling.com slash Mixergy. Rippling.com slash Mixergy. In 30 minutes, they're going to blow you away and show you what they could do to help you take care of your people. Again, it's more than just paying your people. It's managing all the software and all, all the payments and everything that goes into taking good care of them. Rippling.com slash Mixergy. Um, Let's come back to the story. In the early, I really enjoyed doing that ad. In the early days, when when the product market fit wasn't right, can you give me some specifics about what was off about it? Like, I, I want to understand the details of it. So I think it's first, you know, um, the customer journey, right? It has to be very easy to book it has to look professional without uh, investing too much right so we started with a very simple web page and um 
And I think what we did, where we did lots of trials was uh, on the driver side, right? So we employ, we have self, self-employed drivers, right? So very similar to DoorDash, uh, wearing the fixer jacket, you can see it here. And, um, and so, you know, you have to define all the processes, right? Because people are not used to give their cards, right? So they have to look professional, they have to have an ID card uh, because otherwise people don't. <laughs> so we have some that just had to go back home. So it's always disappointing, right? So when you see kids, like they need to wear the brand, they need to have a uh, to carry their own ID cards. And, and I think what we had a few people, usually friends and family to start with. And I think what we really felt was needed was build the trust of customers, right? So we've quickly put reviews from existing customers on the website to help on the conversion rates, right? And I think the more, and that's that's what creates the network effect because once you have an initial customer that leaves a positive review, the next customers are going to be to be, to be be liking that, right? So it's, it's, it's really iterating from a very basic service to more and more uh, to, to perfect, to, to having better operations, especially on the driver side, educating the, the garages, Right, because our on the supply side, we don't do the work. We have partners, garage partners that um, that do the work. So it was making sure that the whole experience was seamless for the customer and me, getting the reviews through how you to, built it. To From what you told our producer, you said the first thing you needed to do was figure out which side of the marketplace to focus on, and you decided we're going to focus on supply because we need the garages that will take care of our customers, and then we'll see if we can get customers. How hard was it to get the garages to say yes? If you bring a car in here, we'll take care of it. Seems like that was easy. I think it was easy-ish, right? So um, because uh, we have we have experts from the auto industry, so they have their own network of garage and they have led garage network expansion and management. Garages have spare capacity and are always looking for more jobs. And our proposition was, you don't have to go and pick up the car, we'll bring the car to you, right? So it's extra revenues. And I think now that we have added more and more features is we also save them time. So I think what we really focus on is one, getting the supply, okay. right? Getting the First supply. Thing was- if we bring a car in, will you take care of it? And I imagine also it's, will you give us a, a, a rate, a discounted rate, because we're going to be bringing a lot and we still need to mark it up, right? Yes. Okay. Um, again, we negotiated initially small discounts. And when yep. we, we were able to bring more volumes, we, neg- we, ne- we negotiated better discounts, right? But initially okay. it was more building the supply side in one location and then bringing the customers in with the drivers so that the whole experience could flow. I'm imagining the drivers was next, right? Yes. Did you did you hire full time drivers or using contractors in the beginning? Uh, we always use contractors, but I think at the, at the start you have to make sure that if you have a booking, a driver is going to be available, right? So same with uh, the garages, we cannot negotiate big discounts when you start. Yep. With drivers, you have to tell them that uh, they have a certain number of hours that are guaranteed, otherwise they would go and find another job, which makes sense, right? Uh, and so as self-employed drivers, we guaranteed a certain number of hours to make sure that they were available for when the first customers would come in. Okay. And um, so supply side, drivers, and then customers. And then right? customers. So and before we go into customers, from what I understand, you also built, there, there are a couple of other things that you built into the site. One is you built a scheduling system, kind of like Calendly, right? So that you can make sure that you understand that you have someone, a driver to go and pick up a car, but also that the mechanics have space. 
Did you give the mechanics any kind of software internally, or did you just assume that if you brought a car in, they would take care of it? Now we have that scheduling, right? Initially, it was all done by email, right? Okay. And we would take the bet that they would have uh, extra space, uh, which they usually did. And if really it was busy, we would reschedule with the client, right? So again, trying to do something as basic as possible uh, to render the to, to give a great experience. Okay. And that's, that's essentially the site that you built the scheduling part that made it easy for people to understand why they should trust you with their car and then allow them to schedule a pickup. The other thing that's interesting is when I go to your site, I see the first thing that you ask is for the vehicle identification number or, uh, or is it the person's registration number? Why do you ask for that? Because it helps us, you know, first people know it, uh, and they know their address, right? So the, the other thing we ask is uh, their zip code or postcode in the UK. Yep. And um, it helps us identify the car so that they don't have anything else to enter, right? So we know the car, we know the model, we have acquired all the data to recognize the car. And so that means we're able to price what is needed on the car. And the more information they give us, like mileage, the more we can recommend what needs to be done on the car. So Got it. And did you build that in from the beginning? simple. Yes. You yeah, did. That and was so you, a uh-huh. initial feature. All right. So then it's time to go and get customers. You started with family. You said, look, go through this. Tell us what you think about the experience. Family is going to be nice, but what are some of the problems that they identified? And then also what are some of the benefits that they liked about it? So benefits is they didn't have to go to the garage themselves. Right. So lots of, uh, uh, that's a time saver. Right. Second benefit is, we have in-house mechanics, right? So they are the ones explaining, basically dealing with the garages, negotiating the price with garages, making sure that what is required is needed. Ah, that they liked that there was a third party who was talking on their behalf with the garages. And so there's a sense that there's someone looking out for me. Exactly, right? Got so it. I don't know, or I didn't know much about cars. That's exactly yeah. what I wanted to offer to a customer, right? So. Not necessarily, you can say, you can take different categories. Women, for example, are the yep. ones that are usually overcharged. But the reality is I was overcharged because I didn't know much about uh, what was needed on my car. I'm like that too. You know what else I discovered? Negotiate with them. I mean, even with the the the, um, the dealership, when, they're, when they've got a fixed price, I just learned if I just negotiate even a little bit before I bring it in, they'll cut down the price. Even after they do the work, they'll cut down the price a little bit. But there's like a lot of negotiation involved. And I never think that on a $100 bill, I I should negotiate. It doesn't seem like it's enough. But they're ready to negotiate. The mechanics are ready to negotiate. So here we do that for you, right? When we negotiate better rates. That's included in our pricing, and I think that's that's what you that's what you get as a benefit. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have thought. I would. I think. Look, they're just main, maintaining the car. It's only hundred bucks. Who cares? But I remember one time saying, "Oh, my wife really wanted me to use the coupon. I forgot you mailed it to us yesterday." The guy goes, "No problem. I'll just put a coupon in for you." I said, "That could happen." And he took like thirty bucks off. And then on my way out, I said, "Thank you. Is there anything I could do to cut the price even less? This seems a little bit higher than I would have liked." I said, let's call somebody over. I They called somebody over and I was shocked. They took off another $10. This is pretty impressive, but now I feel like a sucker for never saying that before. Um, all right, so that was the stuff that they liked. Give me a couple of things that they didn't like. So some were the opposite, right? They felt that they didn't know what was happening to their car, right? Okay. Uh, petrol heads liking their cars. So it was all about 
uh, explaining, really spending time explaining to them what was being done in the car. When um, so basically the opposite of our proposition, which is, uh, I think, what we what we did is is uh, make sure that in our invoice we made very clear what was done in the car. Make sure that we gave them a service sheet where they could know and they they, they would have box ticked, right? And that's something that we would leave in the cars and ask the garages to do. To do what? To provide so all the checks they had done on the cars, ah, they would okay. put it in a survey sheet so that uh, the users would know, and that's something that we also made um, electronic now. Got it. And so I could understand you hand over your car to somebody, you want to know exactly where it is, and that was a surprise to you that people needed to know where their car was the whole time, how soon before it comes home, and then what was done to the car. Am I right? Yeah, correct. Right. So basically, usually you would see it because you would be at the garage here. You, everybody wanted a, a proof mm-hmm. uh, because we were still building the trust in the company. And I think that, that, you know, that was an easy one to solve, but that was the, the customer feedback, the initial customer's feedback. All right. So then I went to SEMrush to see where are they getting their traffic by far? Well, number one is direct, but by far this, the most popular external source of traffic for you is Google. When did you get into pay-per-click ads and organic so now uh, Google is not our majority, right? So direct and organic is, is, is our majority. I think we started PPC uh, pretty much at the start because that would allow us to bring the customers, to convert them and to iterate on our product, especially on the conversion rates. And so, so we're a lot less dependent now. Yeah, I can see that. It looks like uh, Samrush is saying paid Google is seven and three quarters percentage of your traffic, but organic Google is 37% of your traffic. Direct is 45% of your traffic. That's right, right? Yeah. And then I see something, Social Blade Labs. Why is Social Blade Labs so big for you? You don't even know. And Unidays, I see that's pretty big, but I'm yeah, assuming- Yeah, so we have partners, mm-hmm. right? So I think what we've seen is uh, one way to grow the business was to sign partnerships uh, with- anyone who had a big database or membership of people that have cars, right? So Unidays are students, we're, we're working with Perkbox, we're working with an insurer called Co-op. And what they do is they provide, they offer Fixter as an additional service to their audience, right? And we share we share the profit with them. Uh, and do they, they give their customers a discount? They give their members a discount on Fixter? Got Correct. it. So then their members know about Fixter. They have a sense that they're getting an advantage because they're part of the program. Got it. I see that. I see also AAT rewards. I don't know them, but that seems like a rewards program in the UK, right? They're also sending you customers. Correct. Yeah. Okay. But the very first thing you did was pay-per-click. Who is managing pay-per-click and making that work for you guys? Uh, we have an in-house PPC. Even in the beginning uh, or was that you? No, no. At the beginning it was an agency. Right? An so, agency. Um, okay. Uh, yes. Um, managing a small budget, right? So all about trying, checking, um, uh, and trying to bring the customers at the right price. And um, so then we brought that in-house, right? Because I think uh, what you get is, I mean, uh, as many startups, right? It's it's a lot cheaper to work with agency to start mm-hmm. with because uh, you cannot afford someone dedicated to that. And now we have a, a small marketing team with one person focused on PPC, Uh Okay. And then organic, was that the next thing that you did? Started to create content that would bring people over? Yes. Right. Okay. If you want to see a glossary of all the uh, uh, technical terms, it's on our website. Uh, but uh, yeah, creating content, making sure that we have the social media strategy, and then we use the content across our different 
platforms. I think that's something that we did, and it takes more time, right? Uh, so it takes a few months or years to build to build up our traffic there. Were you the one who made all these decisions about what to what to bank on for your initial traffic, what to do next, or was it uh, was it someone else on your team? It was myself with uh, my co-founder, right, okay. uh, who's looking after product growth. And I think it's really related because I think the, the content brings the, 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 the traffic, right? Mm-hmm. And once you have the traffic, it's all about optimizing your customer journey, right? And I think uh, the role of, uh, of co-founders is to make sure that we have the right conversion rates on our website. How much money did you raise to be able to do all this, to hire the agency, to invest in paid traffic and so on? Overall, we have raised six million pounds okay. um, from Cam Adventures. And um, and now working on our next round of funding. I'm looking, um, since you brought up some of the keywords, I could see you've got articles on squeaking noise when turning steering wheel left or right, handbrake warning light on a BMW. You're smiling. You recognize this. This is the type of content that you're writing. When somebody has an issue, you want to be able to explain it to them and then say, by the way, if you need somebody to fix it, we can send somebody over to your place right now to pick up the car. <laughs> Correct, and then uh, we we can add the model of the car, and we uh, we work on different variations. We add the locations as well, right? So people looking for car servicing near me, car servicing in London, right? So that's where we want to to appear on top of the 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 organic results. And so then you moved on to partnerships. That was the third or the the next step of your marketing. How did that go for you? Was it as easy as just picking up the phone to people who had your customers and saying, let's work out a deal and they've got their people in place to do that? I don't think it's 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 ever easy. I think first you have to have a, a great product. You have to have proven that your B2C product works well, right? Because um, I think once you have built that trust and that came in all the online reviews we had, that really helped move to to, to partnerships, right? And then partnership is really about finding someone who believes in the product and believes that they can help grow uh, the, the the traffic, right? So, and the partners we found, uh, I think the, they knew that their audience had cars. Mm-hmm. Every car in the UK needs a, what we call an MOT, an annual check every year. So, uh, you know, matching bows and offering them a discount uh, to, and also a, a product that made the life of their own customers easier, you know, was a win-win for both parties, right? So one, one company we work with is Perkbox. They offer employee perks and especially doing when everybody works from home uh, and you have to service your car, we would offer a service where they could service their cars without leaving their home, right? So that was a, a kind of a perfect match for us. One of the things that I found with people who do these kinds of deals is once you get the deal in place, the marketing has to start. You have to tell the people who have these perks that they could that they could use them. But the partner doesn't have the strong incentive to market to their own people. How, how have you worked that out? So I think it's, it's we have to be clear with the partners, right? For this to work for them and for us, it's uh, we need to align incentives. And I think what we agree with them is, uh, this is our proposition. This is how you can explain it to your customers. This is how it's going to make their life easier. And we work together with them on marketing campaigns. Right? Obviously, uh, you're right, right? So being in the homepage and then disappear from the homepage creates a different peak of traffic. So what we do is agree a kind of a marketing plan for the next uh, 12 months every time we, we onboard a new partner. 
All right. I'm going to talk about my second sponsor and then I want to come back in and maybe get to know you a little bit and see where the future of the business is. But uh, second sponsor is SaneBox. Here's the thing that happened to me. How's your email? My email was just flooded for years. How is it for you? It seems like you, not bad. No, same, same, same. same right? Flooded. I'll tell you my solution. I've talked about this in the past. One was I gave my assistant full access to my inbox. It made things very weird with my wife. If she would send over medical information, I'd have to do something about it or just say, look, my assistant's going to go through it. That helped a lot, but I needed something else. What do you do to deal with your email? And then I'll tell you how Sanebox helped me. Um, I do it myself and I usually, I, I can never get to zero inbox. I'd love to. I know. Now I'm getting to it on a regular basis be- because it does weigh on me not to. So here's what Sanebox does. Sanebox automatically knows how to sort through my messages and say, okay, these messages Andrew doesn't need to deal with right now or ever. And it just starts to bucket them. The ones that are news, it puts into news. The ones that Andrew never needs to deal with, it puts in those. They have something called black hole. They're messages that I don't ever want to see. They just take them and they get rid of them for me. And they then give me just the email that's important. And if I want a report of all the others, I get to see it. And maybe I get go through the list and I say, actually, I think I would like the newsletter from, from Sean. It's pretty good. But other newsletters, I don't care, dump out for me or put it into some archive for me. That's how it handles it. And if I want to train it, like maybe there's a message from somebody who I don't ever care about. I want to just train it to go into uh, the black hole. I could just train it. I say, look, Sanebox, send it into the black hole. Anyway, bottom line, I go into my inbox in the morning. Instead of seeing literally over 100 messages that drive me freaking nuts in the morning, I see maybe 10 messages. And then I have a report that lets me see the others and I can go and figure out which ones I want to handle. And if I want to stay busy on my one project and not have my email just flood in and bother me and distract me, I set do not disturb hours and it sets my email to do not disturb. Anyway, tons of great features like that. I'm going to suggest that you and anyone who's listening to me not take my word for it. Just go and try it. If you go to sanebox.com slash Mixergy, they'll let you try the software for free. I've spent forever asking them about security and privacy and all that. They will flood you with all their security information. They spent time on the phone with me, making sure that they were going to protect the contents of my inbox. I feel great with them. And more importantly, now I get to respond to people faster and I get to stay sane. If you're out there listening to me, here's my email address. Just flood me and see what happens. Andrew at Mixergy.com. If it's a real message, you'll get a response quickly now. And if it's not, it'll go straight into into my junk mail. Or into one of the other message buckets that they create for me. All right, sanebox.com slash mixergy. And if you want to if you want to email me, I'd love to hear from all my listeners, all of them. Andrew at mixergy.com. I used to I used to say coming over to the office. Now I can't even do that. How what's your office situation now under COVID? Still we we're all remote. Mm-hmm. And uh, I hope that uh, we can go back to the office in Q2, hopefully. Oh yeah, you guys in the UK, you're getting closer and closer. You're becoming one of the models for the world, right? Well, uh, we were the bad model with the bad, and now now it's better. Um, so, no, trying to get out of lockdown uh, very gradually. I think the official end date is the 21st of June. Did you get the vaccine yourself? Uh, not yet, not uh, yet. but uh, I guess in a few months. All right, sounds sounds great. What happened in Cambodia? Can we go back to your childhood a little bit before we go into the future with what's going on? Is this a little bit too awkward for me to ask you? Um, look, I mostly grew up as a French uh, French kid mm-hmm. because my parents left Cambodia right before I was born, uh, before because? the Khmer Rouge. 
because of the Khmer Rouge, right? So they had they left the countries before, and uh, my, my father indeed already worked outside of Cambodia. So the relatives didn't uh, left; they didn't come back. Uh, so they were not there when all the events happened and when the Khmer Rouge uh, took over. So that's why I never really grew up as a as a Cambodian kid. Okay, and then how did you end up in Saudi Arabia in the eighties? So my parents. So I just followed my dad. You know, that's what you do when you're a kid, right? Yeah. So. My dad took the French, French citizenship, right? Because uh, Cambodia was a very different country and he knew he couldn't go back because uh, the Khmer Rouge uh, where, where, uh, took power. And uh, my dad had the opportunity to go to Saudi Arabia. He used to work at the ADB, the Asian Development Bank, when he was in um, the Philippines because mm-hmm. I was born there. That's where he was. That's, what, uh, that's where they did. my parents lived for a while. And... Um, he got offered a job at the Saudi Fund of Development. So I just ended up in Riyadh uh, wow. when I was a kid. I loved it. Wow. Um, what do you love about it? Um, it's funny because I think not many people went there. I think it's uh, the desert. We would take, put everything in the car, go to the desert, leave in the desert for one day or the, the weekend and come back. So I think as a kid, it was like really... Like camping in the desert? Yes. In the car, it was uh, camping. and that's Sleep what in the did, car right? or sleep in a tent? Uh, a mix. A wow. mix. I mean, I was small. Yeah, we had our own organization, a station wagon. I think the kids slept in the back, parents in a tent. Yeah, wow. uh, it was a great, great experience. I love Saudi Arabia. Uh, tell me something. I'm trying to figure out what it is about an entrepreneur's childhood that makes them makes them who they are. Do you feel like you've got something from your childhood that allowed you to do it? I, I don't want to just try to like analyze this from a distance and say, oh, he looks like he traveled a lot. He's really comfortable talking to people. Of course, he felt comfortable going into garages because he'd moved a little bit as a kid and had different cultural experiences. That seems like one of the keys. If I want my kids to be ready for the future world where more people need to be entrepreneurial, maybe move them around a little bit more and get them out of their comfort zone. But that's me remotely spending time reading about your life and saying, maybe that's what we need. What, what do you think it is? I think you're so right. You're probably That's the it. first person who you, you're the first one who who asked me the question, but it's obvious. Yes, I used to travel a lot when I was a child, uh, moved to different countries, and I think what you learn is you have to adapt. Right? There was no social media, right? So I had to make new friends. I had to ad- adapt to the new house, uh, new settings. It could be cold, it could be hot, and uh, I think you just learn. Uh, so I became very adaptable, and I think as an entrepreneur, uh, you always, you constantly have those ups and downs, mm-hmm. all right? So you have to be careful not, you know that the ups are not going to stay for a while and sometimes you're really by yourself, right? So that's a real down, right? So what do you do when COVID hit? I wasn't the only one, but I think I had to take tough decisions. Uh, so you're right, I think my my childhood and the fact that I moved to different countries and I had to adapt, I think probably made me more resilient to lots of changes in a very small um, amount of time. And you know what? And I always liked as a kid, the consistency of having the same grade school and the same friends and developing those long relationships with them and watching us all develop. And I wanted to give that to my kids, the sameness, but I'm starting to realize that fighting for sameness might be the mistake that maybe as maybe that was a nice thing to have, but maybe it also made me feel a little uncomfortable talking to strangers or feeling like I could fit in anywhere. And then maybe it made me less eager to leave New York when there were clearly a lot of opportunities outside of Manhattan. Um, And so do you remember one thing that you had to especially adapt to? Do you remember one difficult situation where you 
where you were challenged and then you overcame that and you adapted and you said, I can do this? You know, what was probably the hardest was, um, so I grew up as a French kid, but never grew up in France. So, which makes, uh, what, what was difficult is when I moved uh, to, to France, France, sorry, uh, the American way, in, uh, when I was eight, nine years old, you know, I discovered, you know, going to a school in a city and I wasn't used to that. So, uh, you know, you have to adapt to a no- the new norms of your own country without, you know, I felt as a stranger, even if I was French. Uh, so yeah. it was quite kind of weird. And I discovered snow for the first time of my life. In France? Which was so strange. Yes. Yes, yeah. it was in Paris, uh, eight, nine years old. And, um, you know, it's so funny. I mean, if you live in New York, you, you know snow. Uh, now I love snow, but uh, no, it was... Uh, I think adapting to the city life, like big city life in Paris, uh, that was a, a major change for me. Yeah, you don't think of Paris as being a big city for some reason, but it it is even more so than Manhattan. Frankly, Manhattan seems like more organized. When I watch kids go into school in France, it's like a dad getting a kid on a scooter, crossing this insane traffic to get to the other side where somebody's riding a motorized bicycle that really is kicking fumes off into the air. And I don't know if they can even stop that thing, but it feels very bustling. And I I get that. I get that appeal for kids. Um, you move, You went to Google. You had a really comfortable experience. Well, it seems comfortable to me. Was it comfortable? Oh, it was brilliant. I loved working at Google. Um, and everyone who, who I know who worked at Google said, I learned a lot. Interesting to me is you then moved to InMobi and you said, I learned even more from there. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. Uh, because I think at Google, uh, it was a big company. Like it was a bigger company when I joined. And InMobi was my first startup experience. And I think what you see in a startup is you have to learn pretty much everything. Right? You cannot know one thing very well because you have to, to be able to switch, right? So I think in terms of advertising, I probably learned more in my first year at Inmobi than in four years at Google. Um, and it was a great experience. Um, it wasn't as comfortable. I think it was a lot more challenging, but you, I think you really are forced to do that. Not that Google is not a great place to learn. But you're saying um, at Google, there was one, what's the department that you worked in? What's the one I was project? in the syndication team, right? So basically um, Ads, um, AdSense. Got it. And so, and so you, I knew everything about that. When Inmobi was mobile, it was more display. So I had to quickly learn how advertising was working when I knew only one type of advertising, which was working very well for Google and still working very well. Inmobi, we're talking about the the company from India, right? Yes. Uh, apparently, it's back. the first unicorn from India. Yes. So it was backed by Clarence Perkins when when I joined. And um, we went to raise two hundred million dollars from SoftBank, uh, which was uh, which made it the first unicorn in India. Yeah, was. And so, were you also doing text message ads there for them, or no? Uh, no, I really focused on it. Was just when uh, all the apps were getting started. Mm-hmm. Um, so working with, with lots of uh, apps providers, apps developers. Um, so I spent lots of time meeting many of them across Europe. What's the big challenge right now? I feels like. You found your model, get get garages in an area, 
then move on to getting um, to getting the drivers and then get customers. It seems like because of the SEO that you've been building up over the years, you're getting an on, uh, ongoing collection of customers. One of the first things they do is tell you where they are. So even if you can't service them yet, like I think I saw a bunch of traffic uh, coming in from Ireland, right? You're not in Ireland, are you? Not yet, no. no. But the more you start to see postal codes from Ireland, the more you say, if we go to Ireland, here's the one place where we have the most postal codes. Let's just land in there, start to buy some ads and expand, right? That seems like the, the approach. So that's how we're growing. And I think what we're doing is also developing our portfolio of, um, of, of offerings, right? So we do car maintenance, car servicing, as, uh, as you know, but trying to add more to that, right? Because like we want to be the one-stop shop for everything about your car. And so we have started offering car wash and uh, we're looking at offering uh, car warranty, car insurance, right? Because that's uh, what, once we have a brand, once you have built trust, we want all our customers, we want to make the, our customers' lives easier, right? Uh, on everything related to the car. You want, you get your car, you need it maintained, we're going to do it. As long as I'm assuming it's a used car because new cars get maintenance from the dealer, right? Correct. Most of our cars are beyond three years, three years old. Okay. All right. I see on your website that you not only say, look, we're going to do contact-free collection. You show somebody, I guess they're wiping down the car key and they're wearing gloves as they're, they're wiping it down. What you're trying to emphasize is we're going to keep you safe. I wonder, did COVID make it harder for you? And that's why you're doing it? Or because of COVID are more people saying, I don't want to go into a busy garage, just come pick up my stuff. I think it really accelerated our business. Um, we make sure to first protect our employees, right? So when we all went to work from home, make sure we protect the customers, which is why we have those gloves and uh, and wipes to make sure that uh, we introduce physical contact-free uh, collection delivery, right? And I think the reality is people don't want to go to the garage anymore. You've seen the explosion of e-commerce, right, in the UK or in the US. Mm-hmm. And so we are in that same trend, right? So people are booking online and people don't want to go to stores anymore. Yeah, I used to like going in there. I remember especially the BMW dealership. My mom, my my wife, uh, not my mom, my wife would laugh at me because I would go in there. They had the best coffee, great lounge. I could walk back. And, uh, and now I just don't want to be bothered by it. I'd rather just stay at home. All right. I get it. I see where you are with Fixter. Congratulations on getting this far. Thanks so much for being on here. Do you think you'll ever get to the US or do you feel like there are too many competitors here now? I will come one day. You have, you have to be ambitious, uh, ambitious as an entrepreneur. Europe first, first US next. First Europe. So where's next? Yeah. France or Ireland? Uh, probably France. France. Wow. All right. It's fixter.co.uk for anyone who wants to go check it out. And if you have a team of people, you want to take good care of them, onboard them, offboard them, give them the right uh, set of software tools, make sure they get paid properly, no matter where they are in the world or how they move around the world, go check out Rippling. And if you go to rippling.com slash Mixergy, they'll give you the great Mixergy tour where they will just show you how good their software could be. Again, no obligation to sign up, just file it away in the back of your head and see how helpful it'll be when you really need it. And finally, thanks to SaneBox, you can email me. My email address is andrew at mixergy.com. Oh, I would love it if people just said hi or even told me what they thought of this interview or told me what they were working on or just told me where they were in the world. Thanks for doing that, SaneBox. And if you want to sign up, go to sanebox.com slash mixergy. They'll set you up for free. All right. Thanks so much for doing this interview. Thanks, Andrew. Bye. Bye. Bye, everyone.